Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and it's my pleasure to be joined on the phone by Beatrice Gollum. She's a uh, professor, MD, PhD, professor of medicine, um, uh, internist at you know, um, UCSD, that's um, University of California uh, system as, um, for San Diego. And um, she's going to be talking to us about um, the adverse um, psychiatric and neurological side effects of statins. Uh, these are incredibly common drugs. And I think um, it's really important to be aware of the risks. So, so welcome. And I'm going to uh, kick off by asking, when did you start getting interested in the neuropsychiatric side effects of the statin class of medications? Before statins came out. So <laughs> the history of my interest uh, stems from third year medical school when I was on rotations and um, two major cholesterol studies had recently come out. The Lipid Research Clinic Coronary Primary Prevention Trial or LRC, uh, let's say Lipid Research Clinic, LRCCPT and the Helsinki Heart Study. And in each of them, it had been noted that there was reduction in cardiac deaths, but this seemed to be relatively offset by an unexpected increase in violent deaths. And the, uh, my attending at the time, uh, when the second of those studies you know, said, ha-ha, obviously that can't be related, and my thinking was, well, gee, if there were one study that showed that, maybe you can get away with saying, ha-ha, that can't be related. But once there's a second one, a pink show the same thing, maybe it's start, time to start thinking about how it might be related. And I had a background in neurobiology, and so it seemed to me, you know, it very well could be. And then fast forward to residency, um, hallway conversation with an attending who was supposedly a cholesterol expert and had written a book related to cholesterol. And some topic had come up, and he said, well, some people think that lowering cholesterol can cause violence too, and we know that can't be true. And um, and I said, why can't that be true? <laughs> and since I was chief resident and we were to do a, a grand rounds on some topic, I decided I would do mine on what I assumed would just be the biological plausibility that cholesterol reduction with or without statins uh, could potentially cause behavioral uh, adverse effects. And I just assumed I would be looking at evidence on conceptual possibilities. It hadn't actually occurred to me that there would be a massive amount of evidence that had just never been assembled. And it turned out um, that there had been primate studies showing that if you lower cholesterol, primates became more aggressive, uh, that there had been observational studies showing that you know people with uh, lower cholesterol were more likely to attempt suicide uh, uh, commit suicide successfully and commit suicide, especially by violent means, as opposed to uh, drugs and poisons, that there had been uh, data linking low cholesterol to quote-unquote violent deaths, which were counted as accident, suicide, and homicide, um, that there were data showing that uh, lowering cholesterol affected uh, uh, serotonin, brain serotonin levels, uh, lowering those, that there was a, what had been described as the most robust literature in biological psychiatry showing that low serotonin uh, activity was tied to increased uh, suicide, homicide, aggression. So there was much more than I had anticipated 
in the literature already supporting such a relationship. And then initially I was interested in, you know, as statins came out, gee, does this also occur with statins? And there had been um, um, a couple of meta-analyses, I believe by Muldoon, this was a long time ago, uh, showing that especially for primary prevention, if recollection is serving, there seemed to be an increase in violent death with cholesterol-lowering drugs. Uh, that wasn't seen equally with statins. Statins have, you know, antioxidant as well as pro-oxidant uh, potential effects. And, uh, and, and sort of that's kind of the genesis. And then I remember once I was sitting, it was before we had PowerPoint, and I was sitting in some lab at UCLA assembling some slides for a presentation and somebody in the room says, oh, you know, what are you working on? I said, oh, you know, I'm looking at, you know, cholesterol or statins and violence regression. And he says, oh, that's so interesting. My brother-in-law, every time he goes on statins, he becomes really aggressive. And so he put me in touch with a brother-in-law who was adopted, so he didn't know his family history, um, but was a high school teacher. And every time he would go on statins, he would become uh, very aggressive. And this obviously was not good for somebody you know, in a teaching profession. And then over time, you know, we ended up assembling, you know, a series of cases of people who reach out to us or whatever, where reproducibly for that individual, uh, when they went on statin cholesterol lowering drugs, they developed short temper, severe irritability, violence. And we also ultimately ended up having outreach by family members of people who were thusly affected, including somebody who was a full professor I won't say in what department or at what university, whose wife um, said that every time he went on statins, he not only became basically, you know, mean and unnice to her, <laughs> but seemed to stop being able to even care about her and that this had once almost led to a life-threatening event. And uh, eventually he talked to me and basically said, how do you know the problem isn't her? <laughs> Which is what mm -hmm. was, we interestingly heard a lot. Like some people like that first teacher were sort of self-aware enough to reflect back and observe the change in themselves. And in a lot of other instances, it was the people around them that noticed the change, whereas they themselves were oblivious to it and often interpreted their increased irritability as meaning that other people had become more irritating. In fact, actually, there was a case where uh, a family member of a man who was hospitalized with severe muscle function loss uh, called me up and said, could this be to his statins? And, you know, I reached him in the hospital and was going through our sort of statin inventory of side effects and, you know, any, any irritability. And he says, irritability, no. And you hear his wife in the background saying, oh, yes, you are. And he says, with no sense of irony, you just became more ir irritating. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, and then she says, what about the road rage episode? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So th that was sort of the, the genesis of the whole thing. It actually began with these earlier uh, randomized trials of cholesterol lowering in the pre-statin era. Uh, and then we don't see it equally as an average effect on statins, although it also has generally not, you know, not been closely looked at. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the violent deaths, it didn't seem to show up. But in terms of individuals reproducibly experiencing these problems, it definitely uh, occurred. Well, thanks. So thank you for that, that, that overview. I mean, so many threads I want to pick up there, but I, I think maybe the first one I'll um, just I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about is the sim so 
you know, at, le- at least in the drug labels now, it's it's recognized that uh, statins can cause a degree of cognitive impairment. That's what they describe, you know, memory loss, forgetfulness, amnesia, confusion. And they also describe things like depression and peripheral neuropathy, but uh, there's nothing in, in there about agitation or irritability. So I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, have you, have you had in your, in the research that you've been putting out there, um, this is a loaded question because I know you've had pushback because I've read your articles. I was wondering if you could tell me about some of the pushback that you've faced uh, by um, promoting this idea that they can cause irritability and agitation. I don't know if the pushback has specifically been on that issue, but, um, but yes, there are, there is pushback, particularly people who are heavily drug company funded. Apparently there's one at my university who goes around telling everybody that I am the devil and uh, there was somebody who actually tried to get me removed from my position at my university, uh, citing uh, actually a newspaper article that had misquoted a correct quote from a different article, where thankfully the original journalist had gotten the quote right, which was that, um, and actually it was our work that contributed to that label change for the cognitive adverse effects. Um, but we had done an analysis of people who reported cognitive adverse effects on at least one statin. And among other things, we had looked at, you know, many of these people had been on statins multiple times. And we looked at, you know, which times had they had the problem. And we, we had done a similar analysis for muscle adverse effects where we looked to see, gee, for people who were on statins that were on average more potent, Uh, And some people knew the doses as well as the drugs, and some people did not know the doses. So for the people who knew the doses, we could do potency equivalencies and look to see, you know, gee, uh, for muscle adverse effects, if people, you know, went on a statin, got a problem, and were put back on another statin, we found that if it was of equivalent or greater expected potency, and they were on it for at least two months, that approximately, I think it was like 100% had we experienced the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was much less uh, if people were on a drug of an expected equivalent or lower potency. And I say expected equivalent because, of course, those equivalencies are inexact. And on top of that, people have differences in how they dispose of one statin versus another statin. So a drug that can be of apparently equivalent potency doesn't actually have to be of equivalent potency. Um, but those differences were, were noticeable. And uh, in, in, you know, I think in, I had been quoted as saying in that subgroup of people, self-selected for having had a problem on at least one statin, uh, 90, or I don't remember the exact number now, 90 or 95% of uh, usages of a Torvastatin, which was the time the most potent statin, had been associated with those problems. And that was correctly you know, quoted by the original uh, journalist, but then a subsequent journalist said that 95% of atorvastatin usage led to problems. So, so they, mm. you know, presented this to my department chair and said, you know, she should be kicked out. And some, this was CC'd to somebody else who knew me. And, and, uh, and so I contacted the individual and the department chair. And I said, rather than this backhanded insinuendo, why don't we put this on the platform of, of evidence? And I proposed a debate basically pistols at dawn, suggesting that yeah. the department chair be the moderator. And for some reason, they were not interested in debating me. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, there, you know, there has been that kind of pushback. There was also uh, something that somebody else who I think positions themselves in the drug safety sphere said, uh, 
you know, name calling to me that was published in um, a major media outlet. And I emailed that individual and said, have you actually read anything I've ever written? (laughs) (laughs) And I think the answer was no. And they sent back something that sounded like they got legal advice to say, your work is very important, period. (laughs) And then nothing else. (laughs) But, um, but, you know, there's just that kind of uh, pushback. And then there's, you know, we had a couple of people at my university that were the lower the cholesterol, the better. And one of them did work on oxidative stress, which was something that I'm very interested in in terms of, you know, statins can be net pro-oxidant or net antioxidant. And I believe I understand why. And I believe that that explains almost all of what we're seeing in terms of adverse effects and how statins have bi-directional effects on many different outcomes. And I think this relates to their antioxidant, pro-oxidant duality. And some people at some doses, they're net antioxidant. The higher the dose and the more likely the, the more the person has factors that are tied to mitochondrial impairment, uh, then the more likely they are to be pro-oxidant and to produce side effects. Um, but in any case, after that person gave a grand rounds uh, related to oxidative stress, I, you know, approached them and said, you know, is there any chance we could work together and, you know, would be interested in having oxidative stress assessments? And the answer was basically absolutely no. But by the way, like Soto Voce, your work on satin adverse effects is very important. <laughs> they're very rare, but I've had one. But they're very rare. Yeah. <laughs> it's only because I'm an athlete that I've had one, basically. Like, <laughs> so he's still trying to, you know, uh, again, another heavily drug company funded individual um, mm-hmm. who felt like out loud his mantra had to be these drugs have no problems, even though he himself had experienced um, them. Well, let's... Um, um, I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin in that cause I'm going to ask you about that later, but, but um, now just coming to the kind of the clinical side of things. Um, um, you know, I know in my own work when I've, when I've picked up on this, because oftentimes statins can, can actually be a gateway drug in terms of, uh, you know, a cascade of psychiatric medications, you know, you know, yes. people will come in feeling, you know, you know, irritable, depressed, yes. maybe having anxiety yes. and insomnia and it yes. gets missed and then they get yes. on the, you know, the conveyor belt. Um, usually the way I tend, tend to have picked up on this is there's a constellation of symptoms where they'll say, you know what, like I can't really squat down anymore. You know, when I'm hanging clothes, like I can't kind of lift my arms above my head much. And, and then sometimes they even have a bit of neuropathy, some tingling in their arms. So, I mean, that's kind of what I'm looking for when I'm trying to say, you know, is this a statin toxicity? But I, I wanted to get your perspective as, you know, someone that's been clued into this for, you know, decades. What, what are you looking for um, from people when you're trying to figure out, you know, is, is, is this person having a statin, pro, uh, like a, you know, psychiatric symptoms from a statin? Well, I'm looking at the time course, and then I'm going to do a trial off the statin. And I will give, an, as another example, I got contacted actually by a psychiatrist at what many people would consider the premier medical school in the United States about a physician that was, you know, on, on faculty at that premier medical you know, institution who had, um, had disciplinary action because uh, of his aggressive behavior towards staff and um, and that that physician slash patient I can't remember if it was the physician or the psychiatrist who'd first come across my work uh, and the timing of the complaints had seemed to be aligned with his initiation of statins and so the psychiatrist said you know explain describe the problem could this be just statins absolutely you should do a trial off you know that's the 
most of the time, these problems will reverse within two months. I tell people, you know, wait two months for first evidence of benefit, but usually um, there will be considerable evidence of benefit, and many people will begin improving well before that. But, you know, the full sort of lipid normalization takes six to eight weeks, and so downstream effects of that can take even longer. And, of course, there can be chronic consequences of drugs once they've been removed. But fortunately for the irritability problems, it seems common that they, they fully resolve. So in any case, I also spoke to the affected party and again asked him like, you know, what's going on? You know, what did they say you did? Did you notice anything? And he was in the category where no, he noticed nothing. Uh, what, okay, when did they say it started, you know, this timing? Okay. And when did you start your sentence this timing? And then he went off the statin and everybody else declared that he was fine and he still noticed no difference. Uh, mm -hmm. But fortunately, everybody else had. And I had had another patient for whom that was true. He's a school bus driver where, you know, comes in, how are you doing? Oh, fine, but I'm about to lose my job. Oh, why? Well, uh, you know, everybody else claims I've become irritable and aggressive. Do you notice anything? No. When did this start? So, you know, look up his medication list. In that case, it actually wasn't, it was statin. It was a different drug class that has also been tied in patient reports to irritability problems. And so, you know, I wrote to his employers and said, please, 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 this may be a medication side effect. Give a chance for him to be off and see if the problem persists. And what, case, what was also, the drug? It, away. it was actually, I believe, in the Claritin class. And I hadn't found anything at that time. I haven't looked recently. Um, uh, you know, in terms of warnings on physician sites, but there were patient sites where report after report after report after report, I mean, hundreds of reports of patients describing problems with irritability aggression from that drug class. And so this is uh, antihistamine, right? Uh, like Claritin, yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. doesn't surprise me either because a lot of them are actually um, uh, serotonergic. You know, they modulate the serotonin system um, and... Same as some of the antibiotics like doxycycline, they, they also um, have right. these, you know, these strange serotonin effects and can do those things. Um, but that's, okay, so... Um, so anyway, so back to statins, which was what you yeah. Yeah, asked about. And I think like, I, okay, so, and then you also mentioned drug cascades and I have an example of that as well. I had a patient that divided his year between San Diego and another location, and he had a separate physician in that other location, and I'd known him for years, and he was a slim, cheerful man with not lots of medical problems. And he comes back after six months away, and I literally didn't recognize him. He was seriously overweight, visibly depressed, now on cholesterol-lowering drugs, antihypertensives. He was now diabetic and on diabetes medications, uh, on antidepressants. Uh, I can't remember if he's also on something for sleep. And I kind of went through the history of his medications back there. And I said, I think this is all like, as you said, a, a medication cascade. I think this could all be drug side effects. And it had started with him being put on a statin. And um, he was one of those people who began having sleep problems, which in some people then lead to depression and anxiety, which then led to antidepressants. And he had, was put on the second generation antipsychotics, which had become so popular. And those have those severe metabolic um, side effects. And My then God. And he's on yeah. antidepressants and, uh, excuse me, anti, you know, hypertensives and anti-diabetes agents. And, is, and, and so, you know, it, it took a couple of months of hard work. And by the way, um, 
I was seeing him at the Veterans Hospital, but I understand from clinicians at the university that at least at the time that I gave a, a briefing on issues related to this, they told me that they got a higher pay grade for a visit where they added a medication, but not one where they removed one. But as you uh, know, getting people off medications can be a much more complicated process, especially if they're, you know, if they were having things like diabetes and hypertension and you're unraveling that whole cascade. But when, you know, when I saw him three months later, as we had been trying to unravel those medications and he was already visibly slimmer and more cheerful and so forth, he said, Doc, I didn't believe you when you said it could all be the drugs. Um, and can I, I want to ask you, because I read one of your case reports of a gentleman who really sounded like he was on death's door, like almost on a yeah. ventilator. Was this that gentleman? That No, this no, no, this was completely unrelated. That gentleman actually was on a ventilator. That's somebody where I came in for ward attending and one of the patients on my service was, again, somebody I didn't recognize because the picture that they had for him um, on his file, he, he was, you know, he'd actually been, I didn't, I, I understated the degree of weight loss in the report because it sounded unbelievable. Um, but let's just, uh, to, to not be too specific and, and, and potentially identifying, he was in the several hundred pound range. Um, and then... He was hospitalized. He was on 80 milligrams of simvastatin. This was before the 80 milligram dose was recommended against. And a reminder I tell people is, you know, drugs have their problems before those problems are recognized. <laughs> so just because there's not a warning about a problem doesn't mean there isn't one that might, by the way, ultimately also be acknowledged. But so he was on 80 milligrams of simvastatin, had been in the hospital for months, wasting away. By the time I saw him, I think he was like 134 pounds. Um, had lost, you know, well over a hundred pounds. Yeah. Okay. And it was just assumed that it was ALS. Uh, but there, but they hadn't actually had tests that affirmed ALS. And by then he was like so weak. He was on a ventilator, uh, you know, unable to sit up severely proptotic. Um, and I stopped the simvastatin, and I remember the resident completely rolling her eyes. I mean, visibly rolling her eyes. Like, you know, here's Beatrice. Everybody says she's, you know, has these, these wayward ideas about statins. And I said, I, I really don't know if it's responsible. This man doesn't need to be on these agents. He's, he's dying, you know. And uh, that's not, you know, even we can go separately into the issue of whether the drug would be indicated for him otherwise, but he doesn't need it now. And if it even might be contributing to his problems, we need to stop. And shockingly, within a few days, he was off the ventilator, sitting upright with his eyes wide open. Now, it wasn't a completely uncomplicated course. You know, he was sent out to the floor and then had a mucus plug and ended up back in the ICU for a little while. Um, but he, you know, this man who was on a rapid course toward his demise, uh, you know, survived to leave the hospital. And none of that began. I mean, everything was just spiraling downhill until the statin was stopped. And, 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 and that death, <laughs> by the way, would never have been recognized as statin related. It was, no. I mean, people yeah. say, you know, drug adverse effects are the third leading cause of death in the drug problems in the United States. No, those are just the ones we recognize. It's probably number one, you know, like uh, if it was actually picked up. I, I think that's I bet... very likely to be the case. Yeah. I mean, those, yeah. that's just what we recognize. This would never have been acknowledged as a drug side effect or recognized to be one. 
Well, let me ask you this: what, what do you what do you think about the overall recognition of the the risks of um, these statin drugs? You know, amongst your colleagues, internal medicine physicians, and maybe family practice and cardiologists, how how, how clued in to these problems do you think they are? You know, and maybe not just the neuropsychiatric ones, but also the muscle wasting and 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 such. I think they're not, you know, by and large, not clued in. And, you know, there's so much uh, essentially propaganda on the other side that these are, they have a, quote, you know, optimal safety profile. I remember when COVID first came out, Mass General put out a thing, basically, you know, what you should put your COVID patients on. And the top of their list was high-dose statins, despite no, you know, we heard later how terrible it was to suggest something like hydroxychloroquine with no randomized trial evidence. But here, you know, this, you know, premier hospital is recommending high-dose statins with no randomized trial evidence. And, uh, and, and interestingly, they cited observational meta-analysis that had shown that um, statin use was tied to markedly lower uh, respiratory infection occurrence and death. But I had done an invited editorial for the BMJ <laughs> when a meta-analysis had come out that they mysteriously failed to cite, showing that when you did a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, there was no reduction in those infection outcomes at all. So that's all healthy user, healthy tolerator uh, effects and indication bias. The more severe the infection, the greater the cholesterol drops, the less likely you are to put somebody on a statin. Mm. So there's a little mm-hmm. bit of that going on as well. But, you know, people who are unhealthy in various ways tend not to tolerate statins or they don't tolerate other drugs also, and therefore they decline to go on statins, and those people have worse outcomes. So there's a big healthy user bias in preventive medicines in general. Again and again and again, you will see that use of a preventive medicine, whether it is a flu vaccine or whether it was hormone replacement therapy or whether it is a statin, is tied to, like studies will show, observational studies, 50% lower all-cause mortality with the flu vaccine, even though 50% of deaths are not anything that's prevented by the flu vaccine. Similarly, with hormone replacement... I I, want to make sure I understand you here. Are, are you saying that like when you do these kind of database studies that the people who are taking preventive medications are in general more healthy than the people who are not and that is creating a bias? Uh, yes, and we see it again okay. and again and the way yeah. you know it is that when the same outcome is examined in meta-analysis of randomized trials rather than these massive and t- again, they're often massive apparent benefits you see no benefit or even harm. Like with hormone replacement therapy, massive apparent benefits to cardiovascular outcomes or associations with favorable associations, cardiovascular outcomes, and to dementia. And when randomized trials were done, it actually increased the risk of cardiovascular events and of dementia, modestly but statistically significantly. So even the sign of the relationship um, is commonly opposite to the actual causal direction of effect. Um, of the agent. So in my opinion, observational studies showing favorable outcomes with preventive medicine shouldn't even be published because you don't know if the actual direction of effect is positive, negative, or neutral when you see an apparently massive favorable direction association since again and again, those have turned out to be... Yeah. So, so given that the the I, I guess from your perspective, the research the the research on the risks and the benefits of these medications has been skewed in the literature because of, I guess, incorrect conclusions or overstating conclusions in observational studies. What's your impression of what the boots on the ground 
uh, family medicine physician, perhaps, um, you know, uh, like uh, kind of incorporates about all of this? Like, what, what do you think the, the you, you mentioned propaganda before, like what, what are the key messages that kind of come out of all of this that, that you think they internalize and that they, and that shapes the way they use the drugs? Well, and now it's not just shapes the way, but now like at my university, and I have to decide how I'm going to respond to this. They've just announced that doctors will get a thousand dollars more a year performance pay for meeting criteria for having all their patients with CAD on high intensity statins. There's a meta-analysis by Afalalo that found that patients with stable coronary artery disease did not have any better mortality outcomes on higher, comparing all, you know, high intensity compared to lower intensity head-to-head statin trials. Mortality did not do any better on high intensity than low intensity. And where studies have looked at all-cause mortality and also all-cause serious morbidity, and we can't really look at that anymore because... Um, you know, the, the way serious adverse effects have been defined changed. Uh, you know, it used to be the case that it was anything that caused uh, or prolonged hospitalization, uh, was life-threatening or fatal, or uh, led to persistent disability. And then it only began to be counted it, if you presuppose the outcome by designating that you believed it was related and you believed it was unexpected. So we changed how we define things. But in the older days, serious adverse events were a meaningful proxy for all-cause serious morbidity. And in all the statin trials where all-cause mortality was neutral and a proxy for all-cause serious morbidity was available, all-cause serious morbidity was not any better. So whether it's the PROSPER trial of elderly, whether it's the ASCAPS trial of people with low HDL cholesterol, uh, whether it's the SPARKLE trial of you know high-intensity statins, uh, I actually, I couldn't remember the spark- sparkle trial might have been later. I'm trying to think what the third trial was that I usually cite for this. Um, but, uh, you know, all-cause mortality risk ratios for each of those were about 1.0, and so were all-cause morbidity risk ratios. And that means that in those groups, any reduction in death or hospitalization disability, et cetera, from the heart is fully offset by distributed increases in death, et cetera, from other causes. And in my very strong opinion. No preventive medicine, primary or secondary prevention, should be given unless there's net benefit to the patient, which means not cause-specific outcomes, but all-cause mortality. And if we still had it, all-cause serious morbidity, but we see that all-cause mortality is generally, at least for statins, a good proxy for all-cause serious morbidity. So if all-cause mortality does not show clear benefit, that agent should not be being recommended. And in my view, that goes for high-intensity statins in patients with stable coronary artery disease relative to lower intensity. And then there's the whole separate issue of when should even lower-intensity statins be given. Well, I'm, I'm, I want to clarify this because you've kind of, you're, you're talking about something very interesting. Are you saying that, um, that you know, when you have these these trials, uh, when, you know, there's two groups are treated and an untreated group, you know, on when they do the calculations, it looks like death is the same, you know, all cause mortality is the same in the two groups. Right. What you're saying in the statin group is that there's dual effects. You know, there are some people who maybe it is helping them and, and they're not dying because of it, but there's, but they may actually be killing some people as well or hastening their death. Well, it, um, it, if all-cause mortality is neutral, if the risk ratio is 1.0, then by yeah. definition, any reduction in deaths 
say, from cardiovascular disease were offset by distributed increases in deaths from other causes. And it doesn't matter S- if those are individually drug, significant. Right? Yeah. Like, it um, doesn't matter if, those are, if the causes are individually significant. It doesn't matter, you know, even if you do an analysis to see was all, you know, was not, were non-cardiac causes increased. It doesn't matter. If the risk ratio is 1.0, there, were, there was no benefit to death in the patient. And for statins, where there's no benefit to death, everywhere we had data, there was no benefit to serious morbidity either. We're not giving these drugs to reduce suffering. These are not pain medications that are given to reduce suffering. We're giving them to prevent bad outcomes. And if they're not doing that, they shouldn't be being given. Well, let, if they're doing kinda... it for one thing, but offsetting that thing equally by harm somewhere else. And by the way, this is in randomized controlled trial samples that historically underrepresent the people who do badly on drugs. So this probably already is overrepresenting the reality of how, uh, you know, what will occur in the real world. Uh, and well, even then, it's neutral in the PROSPER trial, in the ASCAPS trial, uh, et cetera, for all-cause mortality. And again, where all-cause mortality and all-cause serious morbidity were both looked at, it was, and, and all-cause mortality was neutral, it was not any better for all-cause serious morbidity. Okay. And so help me understand the other side of the argument, uh, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, I guess doctors, when they are prescribing these medications and people, when they're taking them, their um, perspective is that they are doing something that is going to prolong their life. I mean, that's what they care about. They don't care about the fact that their cholesterol level is within normal range. I mean, that's, that's what they're Wanting, well, that's what they so. should be caring about, but if but we're giving these drugs all the time in in populations where their life is not prolonged. You know, the mm-hmm. Prosper trial is the only trial of statins in people over age seventy, and all cause mortality was totally neutral, and all cause serious morbidity was neutral, and cancer deaths were went up a statistically significant twenty five percent. And yet, this is a drug company funded study. The abstract says this study extends to the elderly the benefits of statin seen in younger age because cardiovascular benefits were present. But they were offset, again, by distributed harms to other causes. There was no benefit to mortality. Am I ask, um, from your perspective, is there a population or a subpopulation of people who you would recommend be on these medications? And if so, what would that specific population be? And, and how much benefit would they get from the medication from, from your read of the, the research? Well, so the unique, most favorable statin trial in terms of all-cause mortality was the 4S trial, which was one of the earliest trials. Before that, which everyone likes to forget, was the Excel trial, which had, I believe, 8,000 people, but was only, was only nine months of treatment. And so they tried to claim when that was unfavorable. In fact, deaths were threefold higher in the statin group than in the control group, although it was not significant because the death rates were very low. Um, but um, uh, the, so the, the 4S trials was one of the earliest trials, the Scandinavian Synthesis Survival Study. All-cause mortality, was, excuse me, yeah, was reduced 30%. But that's a relative risk reduction. If you look at the absolute uh, risks, it was um, 8% in the statin group and 12% in the placebo group. So it's a 4% absolute risk reduction. There was an analysis done by Danish group that looked at if you, you know, looking across studies that give the data from which you can analyze this, how many expected days of life extension do you get 
research from statin use based on clinical trials. And what they found was that both for primary and for secondary prevention, it was in the order of days. So days of expect, expected life extension. Um, now, that's during the period of the trial, but we have no idea what happens when you extend beyond the period of trial by definition, because, it, because some of the problems that arise with statins seem to accrue over time. Uh, peripheral neuropathy, like with fluoroquinolones and other drugs that have potential for mitochondrial toxicity, you know, that mitochondrial toxicity may start very, very slowly. A little bit of mitochondrial impairment, you know, you lower your CoQ10 uh, production and also transport since it's transported on cholesterol. You're lowering vitamin E, and by the way, again, transported on uh, lipids and actually LDL cholesterol is disproportionately involved in transporting some of those fat-soluble antioxidant you know, nutrients. There's a reason why the body puts it there. There's a reason why it rises in settings of oxidative stress. There, and, there, and there's a reason why some studies seem to show it's oxidized LDL <laughs> that is the risk factor and not necessarily LDL overall. And I'll also go back for a minute and say, and say mm -hmm. that there's also a reason why cardiac risk calculators often involve both total and HDL cholesterol and not LDL cholesterol because the total HDL cholesterol ratio contains the entire risk prediction of the basic lipid profile, and LDL adds no additional predictive value, and yet a lot of the treatment is guided by LDL in part, in my opinion, because that lets people put more people on uh, statin cholesterol-lowering drugs, even though uh, it's not, you know, supported by meaningful data. And I kind of, you know, lost my thread a little bit here, but uh, going back partway <laughs> to the starting point, um, I think your question was who should be put on statins, it looks as though middle-aged men with an existing myocardial infarction will get a modest, uh, on average, benefit from statins. And it looks like, on average, 4% fewer people w would die in that study. But we don't know if the people that will die are exactly, you know, in fact, almost certainly they're not exactly the same people that would have died um, uh, otherwise. So it may, you know, so... There's a 4% net difference, but that 4% net difference may hide that there are some people also being harmed, even though on average, there are more people in that trial that were benefited. But again, a lot of people are surprised that the, you know, the, si the magnitude of benefit in that trial, again, the unique most favorable statin trial was so modest. And let's compare that for a minute, for example, to the Leon Hart study using a Mediterranean diet where the all-cause mortality benefit was about twice as great. It was like 56% using a Mediterranean God. diet, also in men with previous myocardial infarction. So how come doctors aren't rushing out to, to you know, push, 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 push people to be on a Mediterranean diet since that caused a far bigger reduction uh, in all-cause mortality and also massive reductions in cardiovascular events, but also benefits to other kinds of outcomes as well. And, you know, you know, there's a reason, which is that there's a lot of money behind educating people about the quote-unquote benefits, some of which are real and some of which are not, um, a statin cholesterol-lowering drugs, and there is no corresponding industry with billions of dollars on the line to, to push for a Mediterranean diet. Yeah, for yeah. Um, personal question here. Um, when was the last time you started someone on a statin, you know, because... You know, you, you're mentioning that there's this one group here and then also there's so many caveats, like the, the rate of improvement is small. You know, it's hard to know whether even those, you know, handful of days that you live longer are even worth it. You know, 
given that you're also exposed to the effects of the drugs. I mean, these may be at several more days, but at what cost? Are we talking about 10 years of exposure to side effects for the drugs? So I'm sensing well, that, that, you know, that's this a is, really good question. And there may be many yeah. more people. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you. There, there are, there's, I think, a lot of side effect potential for many of those people. And rather than answering your question directly, I'd like to talk about some of the groups that clearly shouldn't be on statins and how they're being treated right now in the medical community. Like we get letters from, you know, ladies in their 80s who are clearly in the group where based on the, you know, most relevant clinical trial, which is the PROSPER trial, there's no expected mortality benefit. And based on, by the way, observational data on cholesterol and mortality, um, as you probably are aware, cholesterol is a positive predictor of mortality in younger age, and then it becomes a p- greater predictor of longevity more and more as age gets older. So that once you get to the oldest elderly, um, higher cholesterol is strongly predictive of longer mortality. And some of that is existing disease like cancer that can lower cholesterol and cause mortality. But that is not the entire explanation, because if you get rid of the first five or 10 years of deaths, that, you know, so you get rid of any conditions that are potentially fatal and advanced enough to have caused a reduction in cholesterol, a relationship still survives. Um, and the functions of cholesterol take on greater and greater importance in people who are older in age and or have, you know, certain kinds of conditions like the metabolic syndrome factor conditions. And by the way, if you look at the trials of people with metabolic syndrome factors, all had LLT in people with hypertension, no all-cause mortality benefit, not even cardiovascular mortality benefit in that trial. Or the APCAPS trial, again, neutral for all-cause mortality, neutral for all-cause serious morbidity. Uh, so people with metabolic syndrome factors don't do equally well. A subset of those people have mitochondrial impairment. Those people rely more on cell energy and antioxidant effects associated with cholesterol, so they do less well. And similarly with elderly, mitochondrial impairment rises exponentially with age. It is known that coenzyme Q10 can relatively bypass a number of different mitochondrial defects. We know that from studies like that by Barbarola uh, in Italy looking at people with known mitochondrial cytopathies. So all of us are going around with increasing mitochondrial injury as we get older. That CoQ10 is helping to bypass that mitochondrial injury. And also when mitochondria injury is more evident, mitochondria themselves produce more free radicals and that leads to more of a vicious cycle of essentially the decline that is associated with aging. Um, and so, so, so in older age, we would expect conceptually that cholesterol would be more important. Observational data support that. And the only clinical trial in people over age 70, the PROSPER trial, seems to support that. It was neutral in mortality at an age where observational data also suggests that cholesterol becomes about neutral. And we don't have data on the still older elderly. But in any case, you know, this little old lady, you know, writes to us. She has these terrible side effects. Her doctor is... We, again and again, we hear doctors badgering, bullying, coercing patients, probably because, unfortunately, we're now incentivizing them to have a sufficient fraction of their patients on statins so that they can get their performance pay or whatever. Um, Let and, me interrupt. And, and that's lying a, that's a good, to her by a... saying, you will die if you do not take the statin. This is a person who's in a category where no evidence suggests that she would have had longer survival, and yet they're telling her, you will die if you do not take it. So I want to ask you about that question. Where does that come from, you know, that there's such, a, there's such different reads of the literature that you could have um, uh, professional guidelines being rolled out to universities like your own saying, we're going to make this like a performance metric. How, how can, you know, what, what, what's happened that 
I guess, cardiologists, um, you know, you know, American Academy of Cardiology, I don't know what they're called, or internal medicine haven't kind of come back and said, hey, we need to really slow this down. This is dangerous. What, what's your perspective on how, on, on how that's happened? Um, that- well, having been on two sort of committees that, uh, that were sort of guideline generating, uh, one at RAND and one through the, uh, what was the, some lipid council thing that was supposed to be a statin safety task force, it was really fascinating to see how this o- was operationalized. So in the first one, um, uh, I was asked to look at hyperlipidemia for a think tank called RAND in Santa Monica. And this was sort of early on when I was evaluating the overall, you know, evidence. And back then, uh, you know, my recommendations, they have, they, what they do is they have an 11-person committee. It includes people like the, you know, former head of the American Heart Association and the head of the American College of Cardiology and so forth, heavily drug company funded individual. And, and in my presentation, I say, well, you know, for, you know my recommendations are not going to advocate cholesterol reduction in women because at that time, um, you know, w- the, the data that we had were a relatively small number of studies and none of them had shown all-cause mortality benefit in women. And I mentioned that, for example, the 4S study, the study that showed the greatest mortality benefit overall, women on statins compared to placebo had a 12% higher all-cause mortality, not statistically significant, but clearly not in the right direction. So this person who had these affiliations that I just mentioned basically says, that's just not true. The benefit in women, just, there just wasn't power for it to be statistically significant. And I said, really? I have the paper right here. Would you like to look? 12% higher all-cause mortality. So, so the first thing that was a shock to me was that these people, are, they, they don't actually know the evidence. And the second thing that was a shock to me is they don't care about the evidence because he then proceeded to say that unless the rest of the committee agreed to vote with him to treat women the same as men, that he would mutiny and subvert the project and Rand would have to start all over at high expense and assemble a whole new, you know, a whole new group. So they voted and there were two, I think, women on the committee, one of whom um, I became an admirer of because she obviously actually listened to the evidence and has now become Rita Redberg, who uh, is the editor of... Gem Internal Medicine and became one of the people who would speak out about statins not always being favorable. She actually paid attention to the evidence and voted to treat women differently from men, but the, but the majority ruled. And so, quote unquote, my recommendations ended up, you know, uh, treating women the same as men in that setting. So that was sort of a first experience. And then the second one is I was asked to be on this lipid safety, lipid council, I can't remember exactly the name of it, safety task force, and I was on the cognitive panel. And the first thing, again, that shocked me, uh, but, you know, was that I, like, they had neurologists and so forth on, but none of them seemed to be aware of literature showing that, for example, people who had, and there's a large literature on this, reported uh, perceived, uh, you know, uh, decline in memory uh, had, even if they were within the normal range on neuropsychological function testing, had been shown to have far higher rates of development of Alzheimer's, et cetera. Um, so, you know, much more progression to adverse outcomes. And since we all start from different levels, people can be recognizing an impairment in themselves before these highly, you know, these, these tests that, you know, a person who's CEO of 15 companies and, and you know, somebody, I, I don't want to denigrate any particular profession, but somebody who's, you know, maximum profession might be, so I would say, much, much lower than that. Those very different cognitive 
abilities may both test as normal. So somebody can, can go from very high uh, down quite a way before they test as abnormal, but they can be perceiving something in themselves. So first off, none of the neurologists seem to be aware of that abundant literature, which also, by the way, had shown that there were in those people who reported subjective memory defects, there were, you know, alterations in the anterorhinal cortex and the hippocampus on imaging. Um, and so it wasn't just that they didn't, you know, know the cholesterol literature. So I knew that there's probably going to be a problem. I was participating remotely. Everybody else was in Atlanta. And at the first meeting, one of the people there says, I kid you not, on a satin safety task force, the job of the doctor is to be a salesman for the drug. And I was the only person that objected to that. And I asked the person who had invited me to participate and was the organizer to tell me who that doctor was, and he refused to do so. He claimed he couldn't, quote, couldn't remember. But then he said that everyone else afterward had, quote, agreed, unquote, that it was just because he was a, a quote, older doctor. So he knew exactly who he was. They wouldn't tell me the name. And then on the day that uh, I was supposed to present... Hang on, hang on. Let, 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 let me jump in because I want to comment on things because they're so interesting. I mean, yeah. um, you know, one is definitely, I mean, we didn't even open that can of worms about how... Um, statins end up being a gateway drug to denepazil and a mamantine and all those types of things. And that's horribly missed as well because um, they have the profound cognitive problems. But I, I wanted to, um, you, you know, one thing that I've thought about deeply also is just that it's so, you know, everyone has this perspective of doctors as, you know, where these, um, uh, you know, objective kind of steely scientists and we always follow the evidence. And, you know, I've, and, that, and that's the perception that the public has. And I want to go back to this anecdote where you were saying that you were talking like about, you know, these, these medications probably shouldn't be recommended in women um, and, and how something like that happens. So I wanted to paint a picture for the audience, which is, um, and, you know, imagine you're sitting there with all of your colleagues and you may be more junior. And then I think, what, what did you say? The president of the like American Heart Association or something like that? Yeah, so he was, I think, the, the former president of the AHA yeah. and the current president of the ACC or something, yeah. And so you've got these people who, you know, in, in, the, in the small little like, um, you know, academic circles um, of professors and things like that, you have these two, you know, heads essentially saying, you know, this is what we think. And, um, and I guess I just want to convey like, how much pressure that puts on you if you're in a lower position on the totem pole or if you're further down. I mean, a lot of people end up saying, well, you know, if this person who's, you know, at, at this level in his career thinks about it like that way, who am I, who am I to question him? Um, and not, not, you know, not only is that, you know, they have that authority and you feel like you should just go along, but they could actually be, um, damaging consequences for your career. career repercussions. You know? Yeah. They start saying, yeah. Oh, you know, Beatrice, she's difficult to work with, you know. Yeah, she's like, you know, she's she's a contrarian. Doesn't work or, and know, play well with other. Yes, all, all that stuff. <laughs> she so, so, believes in the patient, not in doing our bidding. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want, like, have you felt this, like, you know, this, 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 you know, because I mean, there's there's not a lot of people like you who are so comfortable, you know, talking about the risks of the drugs. I was just wondering. I mean, have you felt like? Uh, I don't know, maybe it's an inspiring story to others to speak up. I mean, do you feel like it's negatively affected you with your colleagues or with career pro progression in any way? I, I imagine not because you're obviously a professor at UCSD, which is a massive accomplishment, but I was wondering if you could kind of comment on, 
on, on, on, on yeah, being the tall poppy. I would, I would yes. love to come in on this because I'm going to start by telling you how many people warned me against doing this. I gave a grand round at UCLA when I was a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar on cholesterol. At the end, the chair of cardiology, the co-chair of cardiology, who was a woman, called me into her office and said, that is the most objective presentation I have ever seen. I hope you know what you're doing is dangerous for your career. And then I gave a grand, uh, endocrinology grand rounds at, at, uh, at UCLA, and the chair of endocrinology said that was a great presentation. You should be concerned about your personal safety. And then <laughs> I gave, and then the head whom I love, Robert Brooke, the head of the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, was also also the head at, at Health at Rand, whom I knew I especially loved because the day after that thing I just told you about at Rand with that 11-person committee saw me in the hallway at Rand the next day and said, Beatrice, I heard you just caused a riot at the American Heart Association. I'd expect nothing less of you. <laughs> That's what I do. I loved him. Yeah. But um. But he pulled me aside and he, he said things, all of which I you know, knew a little bit about and all of which I believed, but I didn't, you know, I didn't fully, of course, internalize and integrate until I'd lived them all, which was, you're going to do what you're going to do. And, you know, if you, if you feel you want to, you know, go for it. But just so you know, if you do this, um, first off, nobody will fund this work, uh, you know, Industry obviously isn't going to fund it, and neither is the government because they're, you know, their people are under pressure from industry and the politicians who are. Oh, get, good luck if, getting it published as well. I mean, that's another. Yeah, well, that it. was his first step. Suppose you do the work, then mm. nobody will publish it. You will send it to an editor, and they will say this is not of interest to our readership. They will not even send it for review. If it gets sent for review, it will go to people who have made their careers, you know, taking money from drug companies, and will say this is trash. And if you get it published, that's when you may really be in trouble because then, you know, people uh, uh, who are powerful may come after you. And I've seen this play out for a lot of other people, not just in this domain, but in other domains. And uh, and actually, I will, I will also say I got a job offer from Harvard after the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholarship on the condition that I did not continue to pursue work on adverse effects of cholesterol on drugs. Oh my God, that's so that's so bad. So did it did it affect my career? Well, it probably affected where I chose to go. Yeah. Um, and I will um, say, I feel like my university has, you know, I've tried not to make myself to, you know, much of a troublemaker at my university, and I feel like they've let me do what I want to do. And at that on that occasion. When um, that individual wrote to the department chair and said, you know, you should fire her, uh, you know, he looked over what had happened and said, this seems to me like a legitimate, dis- you know, intellectual disagreement and no, she shouldn't be fired. So, he, you know, he, he did the right thing in that setting. Now, you know, personnel change and things change, um, but I have to admit that I have not spoken out as loudly uh, as I otherwise would, because uh, because once people are successfully uh, taken down, and I, again, I've watched this happen with a lot of people. Well, I mean, could look you at tell Nancy Oliveri. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about like you, you mentioned that stage, like after you start publishing, like powerful people will come and take you out. Could you share some examples of 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 that happening? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, Nancy Oliveri at University of Toronto, uh, pediatric hematologist studying thalassemia, developed a, a promising-looking drug for thalassemia, took it as far as she could in Canada before they said, okay, from now on you have to work with a company. I think the company was Apitex or Apitec or something like that. Began working with the company and began identifying serious adverse effects of the drugs. Told the company she was going to have to tell the patients and the medical community, et cetera. And they said, you signed a confidential agreement. You can't do that. She said, it's my obligation as a physician. Uh, it's my ethical duty. Of course I have to do it. And so the drug company, you know, had more or less promised they would sue her, but that was the least of what happened. And what almost always happens is it's, quote, third-party partners of industry. So it looks like it's not coming directly from them. In her case, it was her university. And it later came out that the company uh, essentially offered them a $15 million building, whatever thing. And I, I think, I don't know if that was after her thing, or if that was like a quid pro quo for trying to take her down. But the university began, like they, they put in print, and you should talk to her because I'm going to get some of these details wrong. She's a fascinating, wonderful, delightful, smart, resilient woman uh, who has her ethical compass exactly where it belongs. And so her university, you know, put defamatory things on their website about her claiming, you know, breaches of ethical whatever. Some independent group analyzed the evidence and found that she had behaved only with the greatest probity. She lost her job at, at like some children's hospital five times and was reinstated each time after an independent inquiry. There were allegations claiming ethical breaches, which is almost always part of these things, by the way. I refer to it as ethic molestation, uh, be, uh, it, where some kind of an ethical charge is almost always included because they're very effective, because even if they're completely untrue, they leave a taint. Um, so they're almost always part of these takedown approaches is some kind of ethical smear. Um, and so there was a, you know, some ethical, you know, charge against her sent to a local newspaper. <laughs> she, smart cookie that she is, got a hold of the envelope that sent it, did a DNA analysis, and also got managed to get like a glass or something used by a colleague of hers at the university that was on the payroll of the company and traced that um, that, that, you know, ethical claim, <laughs> the claim of, free, of breach of ethics to a fellow faculty member that works for the company. And again, I don't hold my feet to the fire for any of these things. I could be getting some of the details a little bit wrong. But, and, and then, you know, she invited me to give a talk at University of Toronto, which I did. Uh, but virtually every other time when I'd call her, she, oh, I have to go. I'm meeting with lawyers because, of course, she was sued by the company. The original lawsuit, not only she won, but was awarded $50 million in punitive damages. But, of course, you know, 20 years later, however long it is, she never received a penny. And, in fact, of course, they have kept her tied up in litigation because they have infinitely deep pocketbooks and can, you know, basically can keep people punished by, you know, continued lawsuits and appeals and so forth. Um, so that's, you know, some of what she's experienced. She's kind of ended up, you know, maintaining her job, but I think only because of the amazing, 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 you know, person and personal, you know, force uh, of nature that she is. Um, but then there are other people like, if you look at um, Peter Gocha, the head of the Nordic Cochrane Center in Denmark, this is a little bit ironic because I'd gone to Denmark some years earlier and visited the Nordic Cochrane Center, but the person whose articles I had been the first author on the articles I'd mostly written had not been Peter Gocha, who was, I think, the head of the Cochrane Center. I wish I'd met with him. And I said, maybe we should be getting together a group of 
physicians and scientists who will stand up when there are takedown efforts against doctors. And he said, oh, that takes money and time. And, you know, basically, I can't be bothered. And, of course, I knew it took money and time. And I thought maybe some of us should be standing up to do it as the right thing to do. And then fast forward, I don't know, a decade or... I know. Uh, he, got, he gets taken out. Maybe that, that group would have been and, useful for him. <laughs> exactly. Now, it was Peter yeah. Gocha that was taken down. And that was not the person yeah. that I had met with at the Cochrane Center. But, yeah, so he published on an area that, you know that you're never allowed to publish bad things on. And I, and I, and I thought, well, was it something yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, ever since drug companies were indem- indemnified yeah. against harm from vaccines in 1986, they became a cash cow um, for companies and pure profit. And then it, you know, then the, 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 the messaging increasingly became, you're never allowed to say anything adverse about any vaccine in any setting ever. And if you do, then you're anti-science, anti-child, anti-parent, anti-American, anti-everything. Um, so mm-hmm. that was like when he published the thing in BMJ about Gardasil, I thought, wow, I guess you can get away with more stuff if you live in Denmark than you would be able to, you know, if you live somewhere else. But no, he didn't survive that. And You know, my, I, you my, know. my wife actually developed neuropathy from, from Gardasil when she was 13 um, and wasn't able to walk up a flight of stairs for two years. Um, and, and ultimately the neuropathy was recognized years later. I mean, and it was just, I mean, she could talk to you for a long time about the number of physicians she saw. I mean, but it, I mean, it got us made a huge impact on her life. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I've heard from a lot of people, some of whom, you know, including in Denmark, <laughs> for example, who developed uh, my severe mitochondrial myopathy, for example, after that drug. And, um, mm. Uh, so, you know, uh, but, but adverse effects in general, one thing we hear from people again and again and again is they go in and doctors are respectful of them. And as soon as they say it was an adverse effect of X, then the doctor turns hostile. Um, and that is an issue, you know, perhaps particularly with vaccines, but we do hear it with fluoroquinolone adverse effects, statin adverse effects. And we, I think we did publish one paper on physicians' responses to doctor reports, excuse me, physicians' responses to patient reports of statin adverse effects, where according to patients, at least 50% of the time or more for the top three adverse effects that were reported to us, which were the sort of muscle cognitive and neuropathy, physicians told them it could not be the statin. Even for the most widely reported problems for the most, at the time, you know, best-selling class of prescription drugs, statins, muscle, and muscle problems, according to patients, uh, you know, uh, uh, 50% or more of the time, physicians told them it could not be related to the drug. So there's, and, and, and then they would blame it on, it's your imagination, it's aging, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing, but it's, you know, not the drug. And, and those issues we've heard, um, uh, you know, it's, you know, conversion disorder, <laughs> people oh, get I've heard psychogenic it, yeah. labels, they got, um, you know. Uh, it's just dementia, you know, early stage dementia, you know. It's sad, but yeah, no, I, I've heard it because, I mean, the same thing happens with, um, with the psychiatric drugs. As soon as something kind of slips into a neurotoxicity, you know, it's their underlying condition or it's something else. Um, and yeah, but it doesn't have to be neurotoxicity, right? And mm-hmm. you know, this is a this is sort of partly on topic, partly off topic. It's on the neuropathy topic, but with statins. Um, so you know, we had a patient tell us that 
you know, he took a paper with him to see the chair of neurology at some department when he got statin-associated neuropathy, and the doctor said, I haven't heard of that. That can't be true. Yeah. Wow, I mean, you haven't heard of it, so it can't be true, even though the patient is bringing in a paper. And we had and that, the same thing from patients about cognitive adverse effects of statins. Yeah, we saw the FDA thing, but we think most of those cases have other causes. Yeah. Oh, my, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's easy for me to um, uh, follow. I mean, the, the, the issue I really cut my teeth on as a, a drug safety researcher and then, uh, you know, expert uh, um, specialist, I'll say, was the, um, and it was, was Prozac and suicidality, you know, yeah. right, right from the get go, there were case reports of people, you know, developing akathisia, you know, they started to pace um, incessantly and started having obsessive dysphoric thoughts and sh- shortly after became suicidal. Um, and then it went away when they stopped the drug. And then there was right. rechallenge as well. You know, they would give them yeah. the drug and they develop, you know, the, the, the same symptoms again that were characteristically unique from the original symptoms resulting in the prescription. But for almost 15 to 16 years, you know, it had been kind of explained away by saying, you know, this is Scientology propaganda or this is stuff from pharmacologic Calvinists who don't want people to take drugs. And really, you know, when, whenever you hear about someone becoming suicidal on the drug, it's the underlying condition. And, um, and still to this day, uh, you know, there's people that believe that, you know, that yeah. even though there's a yeah. boxed warning on the drug, they're just saying, oh, Agency just needs to put that there just to kind of, um, you know, placate some, some people. But we all really know that, you know, you know, these, these, these drugs save people. Absolutely no appreciation for the fact that drugs can have differential effects on different people. And, you know, maybe the drug is calming and, you know, has an anti-suicidal effect in someone. But that certainly doesn't mean that the drug can't make some person with certain predispositions more agitated. And that state could facilitate a suicidal behavior that would not have otherwise happened. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 it's. Yeah. And I haven't kept up with that literature, but I remember that, you know, for a while they're saying in young people on average, the effect on suicide is an increase. And I don't know if that, you know, if that stands, I also don't know, even if it doesn't stand, if, if the literature is legitimate. I remember seeing an, uh, something written up, which I could find if I need to, about, um, I won't mention the specific drug company, but an analysis, one of the two cases I know of that are the most egregious that I know of, but you might be able to share more with me, where it looks like uh, drug companies manipulated data to hide what they knew were significant problems. In this particular case, um, uh, an eightfold increased uh, suicide risk in in uh, the Paxil group was hidden by the drug company taking all the um, suicides in the washout period from what would be both randomization groups and counting them toward the placebo group. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I think, I, I don't know, it's like study 316 or something is probably the one it was in, in children. And I, I know David Healy's group, who you may know, who's also another yep. person who has been, yep. you know, you know, assassinated yep. by drug by drug company associates in the past and, you know, knocked out of professorships. Um, but yeah, his group did that, did that study. And they were, they were just talking about, like you said, how, you know, we had, you know, the essentially suicidal behavior was, was misclassified or, or sometimes even coded to a lesser term that would disguise that it was suicidal behavior, such as like emotional lability or agitation. And, 
And as, as you know, as somewhat familiar with clinical research, when you start splitting up events into different um, uh, preferred terms, and then you, you're kind of looking at it in the tabulations at the end, you know, if, they, if they're not... You lose the power to see the effect in one of them exactly. by splitting it up into a number of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is another reason why I argue that all-cause mortality should be the index, especially for preventive medications, because there are instances where it has been manipulated, um, uh, but they're, they're relatively rare. I mean, whether people live or die is the most objective outcome, and it's also the one, that is, it's the one that's the hardest to gain. And repeatedly, there's evidence, including even in the aspirin trials, that people gained cause-specific outcomes. Um, so I think that's another reason for preferring all-cause mortality as an outcome is that it is more difficult to manipulate than many of the other outcomes. And now it's the reason that's not done is, is obviously that's, that's more time, right? I mean, I don't know how long the statin trials are. I assume that maybe for something that's a preventative med, maybe it, are they for a year or two years? Like how long is the randomized portion? Yeah, they're up portion? to five years, you know, they're up yeah. to five years, I would say, depending on the trial. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they're long enough that it's, and, 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 and the data have shown that, you know, that the mortality outcomes begin to split at six months. So you don't need necessarily a super long trial uh, to, you know, see a mortality benefit if there's going to be one. Um, okay. And, okay, all right. So it sounds like they are powered to detect, more, uh, you know, a mortality. Well, I don't know if powered's the right well, word. Well, depen- so it depends, yeah. Yeah, depends on what you mean yeah. by powered. Like, yeah. you know, people will say, oh, it just didn't have the power to detect blah, blah, blah. You mean it didn't detect blah, blah, blah. But for example, like when I give, you know, a diet talk to the fourth year medical students, I talk about the, the, you know, include stuff on the early, because, you know, we tell people for a long time, low fat, low saturated fat, low cholesterol diets. Okay, what did the randomized trials show? And they didn't show any benefit. And one of them actually showed increase in mortality. But one of the ones that didn't show benefit was the diet and reinfarction trial, which was a factorial design study that also included a high fiber arm and an advice to eat two fatty fish meals a week arm, and then, you know, a low cholesterol arm. The low cholesterol arm was totally neutral for mortality, and people say, oh, it's just not powered. Well, okay, but the two fatty fish meals a week had adequate power to show mortality benefit. Like, what does it mean when you say it wasn't adequately powered? Like, the, the size effect, um, you know, that that... Uh, you know, that would have to be so small that who would care, you know? People kept for, on for saying that, that, that about the antidepressant research, which is the other thing. And, and you know, if, like, if you're looking at suicides as the, um, or suicidal behavior as the, as the outcome, you know, if you have a drug that can have dual effects, you know, depending on factors about the individual that you do not know, you know, so it's yep. such that yep. some people yep. are better and some people are yep. worse. That study yeah. is never going to have enough people to 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 show that imbalance, you know. Um, well, it can if you can predetermine which are the groups that are going to do which, and then select yeah. those groups for study. And I actually yep. proposed that once to the NIH for a statin trial, and it, I thought it was going to be like the most important <laughs> statin trial, but of course it was rejected. And I kind of yeah. gave up trying to apply for funding to look at. Uh, yeah. Statin effects because there, you know, as I was warned, there were there is no will really to do that yeah so the, the next thing i want to talk about uh, is actually um and, and let me know if you're out of time because i know we're going long but that when, when i suggest to people uh, you know you know this constellation of symptoms you have 
maybe due to the statin. They've had a hard time coming off it with their family medicine doctor or, you know, or, or maybe even become afraid when I suggest it because they're like, well, I don't want to have a heart attack is, is their thought. So I wanted to get your, you know, how do you approach this issue when you kind of counsel people, you know, at a patient level about um, potentially coming off the medication? How do you discuss the risks and benefits of that decision if you have identified that they are causing some, you know, myopathy, neuropathy, you know, psychiatric problems? I'd, I'd love to hear your, yeah. your approach okay, well, to it. I, I will say that I think that statins have both pro-oxidant and antioxidant effects and that the antioxidant effects can go away first. So it can leave a period of vulnerability where people can actually worsen their statin side effects by stopping the statin. That doesn't happen very often, but it happens rarely. And in that phase where they can have a higher pro-oxidant effect, again, the statin pro-oxidant effects are, are still there. For example, you know, the lipids are still lower and the antioxidant transport is still reduced and so forth. So I do suggest to people, and this is not based on, as far as I know, there's never been a study having people like start CoQ10 before they stop their statin, but that is what I recommend. I recommend that they start coenzyme Q10 um, just in case be, for a couple weeks before they stop the statin and stay on it for a couple months after. Um, just to make sure that they are tidied through any potential period where they may still have pro-oxidant effects after the antioxidant effects have dissipated. What's the dosing for that, just so I can uh, get that out? Well, so, the, like, the dose that I will suggest, and I also, like, bioavailability varies radically with different CoQ10 preparations. It's very difficult to make it bioavailable. And so a lot of preparations are between, like, 4 and 6% bioavailable um, the, one of the best and the one that a lot of the data that's showing benefit, by the way, to cardiovascular endpoints, so that's another sort of justification for it, is the Pharmanord brand made in Denmark using prescription-level quality control. In fact, I believe it's sold as a prescription drug in Germany, the same thing that's sold um, in the United States. They now actually, I used to have to order it through England, but now they actually have an outpost in New Jersey, and so you can buy it, you know, in the United States. So that's a brand I like. I tend to recommend ubiquinone over ubiquinol. So what does that mean? What is ubiquinone? What is ubiquinol? They're both names for CoQ10. Ubiquinone is the oxidized form. Ubiquinol is the reduced form. We've heard uh, both are widely interconverted by the body into the other form. Uh, but when we did a like a randomized trial of CoQ10 in, in like patients with Gulf 4 illness, we picked ubiquinone because that's where most of the data were at that point. And also, as it turned out, we later heard from a number of both fluoroquinolone adverse effect sufferers and Gulf 4 veterans that they got better on ubiquinone and a few people get frankly worse on ubiquinol. And looking recently at the mitochondrial literature, ironically, in the mitochondria, if ubiquinone, if, if the CoQ10 is so the ubiquinone is used for energy production and the ubiquinol is used sort of for antioxidation. Um, but when energy production is too low, that increases oxidative stress, oxidative stress production. I don't know if that's why, but an article that I recently read said that if the CoQ10 in the mitochondria are too heavily in the reduced form, it actually leads to increased mitochondrial oxidative stress. So that may be why some of those people end up doing worse on ubiquinol, and we've never heard people doing worse on, again, good quality uh, brand of ubiquinone. 
Um, so with 300 milligrams a day, 100 milligrams split three times a day, you do get higher blood levels with divided dosing, but you don't have to do divided dosing. Um, you just get better blood levels if you do. That's the dose that's been used in most of the clinical trials. There's data from Mortensen et al. showing a halving approximately in death in heart failure patients with CoQ10 versus placebo. Um, there's data from a study in Sweden in community-dwelling elderly that combined Q10 with selenium, which of course is important for uh, glutathione production, one of the other major antioxidant systems that showed, you know, reductions in cardiovascular events. There are two randomized controlled trials of CoQ10. Uh, I believe both are in patients with existing coronary disease by SING, S-I-N-G-H, showing reductions in cardiovascular uh, events with coenzyme Q10. So there's justification for coenzyme Q10 anyway, if you're trying to reduce cardiovascular events. Um, but so uh, the dose I recommend is the dose that's been used in those studies. There are some people with stent side effects or other conditions that actually need a higher dose to achieve the benefit they will achieve, but that is sort of a good general starting dose. How do you deal, okay, so ubiquinone, 100 milligrams, three times a day. How, how do you deal with um, the fear that, that I guess the, the other doctors may have instilled in the patients, you know, it's that, you know, if you stop this medication, you're essentially setting yourself up for an early death. I mean, how, how do you counsel them about, about that, that part of it? Or, you know, well, I mean, I mean by giving them the data, you know, okay, you are, yeah. you, you know, if they're older, they're not in a population that has shown mortality benefit statins. Yes, there, I think there is a legitimate risk in the discontinuation phase. But again, I think that's due to that period where the prooxidant effects can, and we, again, we even occasionally hear that people's statin side effects themselves worsened in that initial phase, again, because the prooxidant effects can take longer to go away. Um, but we haven't heard that from people who pre-treat with, with CoQ10. Um, it doesn't happen very often anyway, but so, you know, okay, so, you know, beyond CoQ10 in this phase, and frankly, if you're trying to protect against cardiovascular events, you might want to stay on it anyway. Okay. And, um, okay. Um, Interesting. Okay. Do you recommend any, do you ever recommend any replacement of like other cholesterol lowering agents or is it kind of, I mean, the whole. I'm not persuaded life. that cholesterol reduction is yeah. even what is beneficial about statins. And among the reasons why I'm not persuaded that that is what is beneficial are people say, oh, but people whose cholesterol drops more uh, on statins do better. Yes that's not randomize them to have their cholesterol drop lower. Those are the people who do not have prooxidant effects trying to push back up the cholesterol because they need the antioxidant transport. If you are looking to see, if you randomize people to get lower cholesterol, like in the Afalalo meta-analysis, then they don't live longer with greater cholesterol reduction. Why is that if cholesterol is really the, the beneficial factor? I think, you know, statins often have net antioxidant effects. They that prooxidant effects, I think that explains a lot of the risks and a lot of the benefits. And let me just get whoever's calling off the line one second. Oops, sorry, they, they were gone. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't feel a need uh, to, to lower their cholesterol because I'm not persuaded that that is where the benefit is coming from necessarily. And there are these multiple other mechanisms that you can use, like a Mediterranean diet, like, you know, uh, 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 
uh, coenzyme Q10 <laughs> that don't seem to have the same problems and are associated with reductions in cardiovascular events and deaths, including in randomized trial data. Is there a certain level of cholesterol that you do think needs, needs to be treated, like when it crosses a certain threshold on a lab form? That is a good question. And I don't, you know, that's a good question. Um, it, you know, it's clearly the case that people with the very highest cholesterol levels have more adverse outcomes. And then you can ask, is that because of the thing that's driving up the cholesterol or is it because of the cholesterol itself or, you know, the oxidized LDL or whatever? Um, and uh, I, I will admit that I am more nervous, you know, if, if the cholesterol is ex extremely high. I do then also want to know, like, are you, in a, you know, in a family that has high cholesterol and do they have high rates of heart disease? And I also want to know, is it because of high HDL? <laughs> because, again, it's that ratio of total to HDL cholesterol that is associated with the cardiovascular risk. Um, but you know, another thing that I've found is that a lot of patients with familial hyperlipidemia are among those that do badly on cholesterol-lowering agents that, and in some cases, are the ones that, you know, have unmasking of bipolar disorder-like issues or suicidality. Mm. And I've dealt with some young people that had familial hyperlipidemia, one of whom got terrible psychiatric problems every time he was put on a set, including once on a field trip at school, jumping out of a window of a hotel. Um, and so, uh, I wonder if for, for some of those people, the elevated cholesterol is an evolutionary adaptation that is solving some other problem that might be genetically coupled with it. Um, uh, yeah, because when you lower it with the, with the drug, it seems to really unbalance the system is your observation. Right. And, and I don't know that that's not necessarily true for everybody with familial hyperlipidemia. Um, but, you know, we know from the older literature that people with high cholesterol, you know, in the 1800s, when infectious disease was common, lived longer. And we know that higher cholesterol in observational studies is tied to lower rates of viral disease. Even there was a study showing that like higher cholesterol 10 years before the HIV, you know, epidemic began, <laughs> uh, be, was associated with lower risk of, of HIV associated deaths, you know, subsequently. So I think some of that is, you know, cholesterol is involved in transporting carotenoids and which are the precursor to vitamin A, which is very important for mucosal immunity. Uh, so that may be one of the mechanisms associated with that. Um, and we saw some similar things in the COVID era. One of the early COVID papers that came out, um, I wrote to the author and said, can you tell me like what the relationships were between pre-treatment LDL and outcomes? Because yes, it can look like post-treatment higher cholesterol is linked to better outcomes because, uh, because more severe infection will cause uh, cholesterol to drop more. So you can, you know, it'll spuriously look like high cholesterol is had better outcomes because it's a less severe infection. But in fact, their data had shown that higher LDL cholesterol in the pre-COVID era was tied to less adverse outcomes. And I said, can I cite that? And she said, no. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's another interesting thing. I mean, well, I'm going to ask you, um, is statin use and um, these cholesterol-lowering agents, is it associated with the higher risk of infections? Is that something that you see? Um, 
coming out of the um, aggregate uh, adverse uh, adverse event reports from the clinical trial data? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that, yeah. you know, like w- when COVID emerged, Mass General, lots of people were saying give statins, they're anti-inflammatory, they protect against heart disease, they're oh, going to yeah. be good for your patients. And I thought, okay, well, you know, let's, we saw that same claim. And again, I have that 2011 BMJ editorial, you know, with the word statins and infection in the title, I remember, but it's really a treatise on healthy user, healthy tolerator effects uh, that's, you know, traverse beyond statins. But again, it's focused on this fact that, yeah, in the observational studies, you know, higher, you know, uh, I guess in the observational studies, statin users did better in terms of infection risk. Uh, are, are, you know, again, huge apparent associations be- with better outcomes. But then yeah. when someone did a meta-analysis, the risk ratio is 1.0, no effect whatsoever. And we have an article that we're trying to shop around for more than over a year (laughs) on statins and COVID that goes through all the reasons why there's a different perspective. And then also the data from both the observational studies showing the same thing we saw with pre-COVID infectious diseases and then the randomized trials, which, you know, I, I think there was one that showed apparent benefit to one of a suite of outcomes, one that was neutral for everything and one that was adverse for a bunch of things. So again, we're not really seeing, whereas the observational studies, you know, as much as 70% lower <laughs> bad COVID outcomes, nothing like that in randomized control trials. It looks approximately neutral, maybe a little adverse on average. Um, but yep. overall, yeah, but, no, but nothing, you know, no massive favorable associations, uh, uh, no, yeah, I'm. I'm just. I think I've pulled up the simvastatin label in. Well, the, in front of me, and this, that they look nearly equal, but in all, all stages, slightly higher rates in the um in the drug arm, um in uh, the uh, of what and and you're looking at what again? Uh, simvastatin, just the adverse reactions table, section six. Okay. You know, you know, for uh, bronchitis. On the FDA side, or yeah, yeah, yeah. On, okay, on uh, the great. the FDA, yeah, okay. for bronchitis urinary tract infection, sinusitis. Uh, sinusitis has the greatest difference where it's um, 1.8% versus 2.3% in the drug arm. And I mean, that's so minimal, but there's a slight kind of imbalance there. I, I think it would be maybe more apparent if you pulled it with other statins and had a look at it that way. But And I'm going to say, I think they might be about neutral just as they were in the randomized trials for the pre- you know, COVID era agents and, you know, you're, you are counterbalancing a couple of different effects like statins are often antioxidant. Natural killer cells in particular are highly vulnerable to oxidatively mediated apoptosis. And unlike a lot of other cells, they don't, they then don't necessarily replicate fast enough to sustain levels. So a lot of oxidative stress associated conditions are tied to lower natural killer cell, um, you know, uh, numbers. And that, that's adverse for infection, infection. But on the other hand, as you lower cholesterol, again, you're lowering carotenoid transport. And that, um, so, so you're counterbalancing two different effects. And, uh, you know, my, my bet is that on average, the effect is about neutral, maybe adverse for some people, maybe favorable yeah. for some people. Look, it's lo- looking like that. But wow, we, I, I've kept you on the phone for a really long time because honestly, it's, it's been so nice to speak with someone who's got such a, you know, uh, you know, well-developed uh, and nuanced viewpoint on this, um, but I think it's probably getting a bit long, uh, a bit long for the audience. But I, um, 
So I think let's 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 try wrap now. I want to give yep. you an opportunity to add any final comments um, that you think uh, you didn't get around to, or or things that you might want the audience to know. Um, I guess maybe you know if I were to, to to sort of have one main point that 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 I would press from this, it wouldn't just be about sounds, but it would be that really you know if you're going to as a physician prescribe a drug, if you're as a patient take a drug. You really want evidence that in people like you, the benefits clearly surpass the risks. And generally, for preventive medicines especially, the index should be all-cause mortality. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if all-cause mortality is not clearly favorable, then... You know, again, you're not looking for cause-specific benefit. You can everybody could take amphotericin, and they will have you know less of certain kinds of kidney problems, but they'll they they'll die. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you don't want to look at cause-specific outcomes. You really want to look at the overall impact on the patient. And all-cause mortality is a good general index that often also correlates with serious uh, morbidity, and that is the most difficult to manipulate. Um, among the outcomes. So that would really be my biggest take-home message. I, I have another question, which has dawned on me. Do, do you ever recommend tapering statins? Um, I would do it a lot with psychiatric medications. We pull them off sometimes over several months. Um, has, that some, has that been something that you've ever thought about or instituted um, to try and mitigate those uh, you know, that observation that for some people that the um, statin side effects kind of flare up a little bit just when you're beginning the, to discontinue the drugs? Yes, I would say I have thought about it. Um, and I have probably, you know, a couple of times implemented it. If, if you don't have any urgency to get people off, uh, then, you know, uh, that may be... Um, Makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with me on a Sunday. I mean, it really has been a pleasure. I hope you don't mind if I keep in touch uh, going forward. No, I would, I would love it. It's wonderful to talk with somebody else. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll add another sort of caveat for doctors. <laughs> One of my mantras was, if you see any new unexpected problems, suspect the medicines first. And I think mm-hmm. that has saved my hide and my patients' hide more times and for more unexpected things than you could imagine. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to send you a link to this interview when it's posted. And, and thanks once again. And, and I hope you have a really nice uh, rest of your weekend. Okay. Very good. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.